that we thought we would begin to tackle this theme today, which is a really broad theme. You're probably thinking, what is that stuff they're talking about? We're going to talk about something really small uh, like matter. And we thought if we're going to talk about the value of the human body, that we should start on that big grand scale and talk about matter. So the reason why we have Matt sitting up here is, Matt, what do you do with yourself during the week? Uh, I'm a research scientist. Okay. Um, I work at the School of Pharmaceutical Sciences at uh, Monash University. And I use, I'm a, I work at the intersection of uh, high energy physics and biology. So we use high energy physics to try and understand how drugs work, exactly how they work, and um, how they bind to their biological targets and use that information to help maybe design new drugs and whatnot. But my area of interest is high energy physics and, um, and matter itself. Yeah, so that's why we thought we'd bring Matt along to talk about matter. You get that? All right. That, I hadn't even thought of that one. It just came out dad joke. All right. So, so you lecture on this uh, weekly. You think about this all the time. And so there's two particular pictures that you uh, – I, I said, would you come and Should just we look at the first one? The first one. Okay, I'm going to jump this one forward there. That's there the go. first one. Um, could you just give us a little brief outline of – Quantum theory and matter. All right. So th this um, this made me laugh because I think this we might be uh, uh, broaching new territory for churches. I don't think any church has ever um, been willing to be subjected to a three-hour lecture <laughs> <laughs> on um, quantum field theory and um, solving vector calculus problems. But um, what I've got on the screen here is, is, is what we know, um, or no, let, let's just say it's our best guess currently of what nature looks like at its most fundamental level. And this has been an interest for humans ever since Aristotle. Aristotle used to think about, well, what is the smallest thing? If we cut a piece of wood in half, we get two halves of wood. But what if we keep cutting and cutting and cutting? What will we, what will we end up with? And um, that obviously got scientists interested for the last uh, uh, a couple of thousand years at least. And um, I thought I'd tell the story a little bit of, 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 of what we have currently understood. And our best current understanding of what nature looks like is, is summarised on, on, on this, this slide here. This is, um, this is called the standard model of physics, Okay. And so let's just tell it, start with a little bit of a story. In the beginning... There was light. There was also an up and down quark and a whole bunch of gluons. Now, um, these eventually uh, came together to form other particles. But essentially, uni the universe is made up of these coloured, weird, weirdly named things on the board. They're this colour? They're not this colour. Okay. They don't have colour. Although they're... they're, 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 they're they're said to have colours, but we just call them colours, but it doesn't mean that they've got colours. Um, <laughs> it's very confusing. It's very, very confusing. Um, in fact, they've got wavelengths and a whole bunch of other stuff too, but let's just start with the top. So th most of the matter that we're mostly familiar with is, is everything that we see around us. So that's entirely made up of up and down quarks. So if you combine two up quarks and one down quark, you end up with a proton. And if you combine two uh, down quarks and one up quark, you end up with a neutron. So when the universe first started, we were just had these things. So we just had electrons, up and down quarks, and they all combined into the fundamental matter that we currently see around us right now. And over time, 
We'll go to the next slide because th- we're going to get lost in the weeds with, uh, with yeah. this one here. Because that's nothing to quark about, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Over time, um, uh, these, these, these particles interact. If you notice, there's a weird little box right on the edge. Um, all these particles interact with something called the Higgs field. So the universe is, what we understand is, is uh, these fundamental particles interact uh, with each other in certain ways and, 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 and there are certain forces of nature. So there is the weak force, the strong nuclear force, the electromagnetic force and gravity. And they all interplay with each other but essentially all of these, other, uh, these particles travel through something called the Higgs field and this Higgs field gives something mass. And when something has mass it starts to exert gravity on other things that have mass. So this happened. In the beginning, there was light. There was the quark-gluon plasma. This coalesced into atoms that we understand now. And these atoms have mass because they travel through the Higgs field. And because they've got mass, they start to come together under gravity. As more and more and more things, these primordial particles came together under gravity, um, that, that gr- pressure of gravity become, became greater and greater and greater. So they started to collect more and more and more mass, more and more and more particles, and the first stars came to life. Because what happened, the forces of gravity was so much that it squished these little protons together so hard that another force took over called the strong nuclear force and combined them into helium. And then the force of gravity kept increasing on these stars and then combined more and more neutrons and protons to all the elements that we know all the way up to iron. Then these stars got so hot and just ran out of fuel because you can't convert iron into anything else with this this, uh, gravity method of what's called nuclear fusion. Man, we're going into some deep bits here. (laughs) We're we're nearly done. We're nearly done. Oh, where are we? And then these stars explode. And when they explode, they create a crazy amount of energy, and that forges all of the elements above our iron. Now, this, is, this went on for a very, very, very long time to the point where it created all the elements that we see around us. So technically, everything inside of us is born and forged inside of a dying star, which I think is beautiful. Um, but what's even more beautiful is that... Um, when, when um, matter gets together and, 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 and it does very strange things, and this is this beautiful picture behind us, this is what obviously made Einstein famous, that he realised that um, gravity was not really well understood, at least the way that Newton described it. Something more profound has to be going on. So when you get enough mass and enough matter together, it starts to bend space and time itself. And that has some very profound effects on how we understand the universe. So matter matters in as much as that it not only governs everything that we see around us, but it also governs how matter interacts at, at scales between from, from the individual particle to a bacteria all the way to a planet, all the way to the, uh, the galaxy and all the way to gal- galaxial superclusters. It is absolutely beautiful. But that is... Twelve or so years of study compressed into. Didn't you do minutes. well? Wasn't that good? I reckon this is a first. I, I, I will guess that this is a first ever in church that someone has done a summary of quantum 
in what four and a half minutes? Well done. Not the you, greatest summary. Matt. Now, <laughs> so, and there's some people here who are going. I want to be part of that class. So when do we start on? Is it Monday or Tuesday? Yeah, yeah. Week? We're going to we do a six-year-long um, lecture series. The reason why this is really important to us today, there's a, a, a Roman Catholic philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor, and he says this about moving through. Uh, cultures over the past two, three, four hundred years. And he says, as we became rational and scientific, and especially as we marshaled naturalist explanations for what we used to attribute to spirits and forces, which you've just described, the world became progressively disenchanted. I agree with that. But to what degree? And I think there's a lot of people in our culture right now that defer to the likes of yourself, Matt, the scientists, to say, when you're doing your experiments... If you've dethroned God, are you talking? Are you thinking about that when you're undertaking your experiments? And more so, now you're our new moral and ethical teachers. I think there's a whole lot of people that would defer to the likes of you. Yeah. So let me ask you the question. Through your quantum theory, have you dethroned God? And are scientists often thinking about ethics and morals as they're doing all of this to fill the gap? Yeah. So, so that's that's a that's a great question. Um, it's actually a really important one because we, we've talked about this yeah. a lot uh, privately or offline. Yeah. Is that I, I feel that scientists aren't thinking about any of these things. In fact, I feel like science has been co-opted by a, a bunch of other people. That oh, scientists have found these truths about nature. Scientists have understood that, 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 that things are made of, uh, that the standard model explains the universe as, as, as we understand it. But actually all of this is a mis misrepresentation of, of, of what we do and what we're interested in and, and even how we understand these things. Especially, uh, you know, I, show you, I showed you guys a, a very brief outline of the standard model. But the standard model has got gaping holes in it. It's, it's, it's the best guess that we've got. In fact, it's, it's held up under many experiments that we've got, but it's still, an, an, it's still just an explanatory framework that doesn't really have any moral or ethical uh, anything to say about how we live our lives, how we should behave. And I see even things, because I, I, I mean, I've studied and, and published a lot in evolutionary biology and, and pub published a lot in, in sort of evolutionary science, and, and, but... but None of that has anything to say about what what God's creation. It, it maybe tells us a little bit about mechanism, and maybe tells us that God has this wondrous, beautiful, creative process that we're getting tiny little glimpses of when we try to explain it and try to put it into a framework. But a lot of a lot of what we do is not um, guided by ethics, and we're not trying to dethrone God. In fact, that's the furthest thing from most scientists' mind is that we're just interested in, how does that work? That seems beautiful. That seems like something profound is going on here that we don't mm. understand. What, what can we do to try and understand it? Mm. In fact, I would call it almost a spiritual endeavour. Okay. Is that um, we get a chance to uncover some tiny little beautiful bits about creation. Mm. Just the way that I think poets uncover beautiful parts of creation through their poetry. Mm. Just the way musicians uncover parts about the creative human spirit and, and, and God's nature through their music. Mm. I don't see it, the science as being any different than any of those things. And to put it on a pedestal, in my mind, turns it into something like scientism. It becomes a, a certain type of religion. But not many actually working scientists 
believe that they are uh, the masters of the universe and understand everything and therefore have gotten rid of God, you know, yeah. that, that is not how we work and, and that is not how all, all my colleagues think. And, and many of my colleagues are, are atheists, but that doesn't mean that they think that their work has uh, undermined God or has explained God away or explained divinity. I don't think it does any of those things. Very good. Thanks, That's, Matt. That's really helpful. Finally, then, when you look down a microscope or when you explore quantum theory, how does that lead you toward God and not away from God? Yeah. Um, a lot of people here might think, oh, who cares about quantum theory, right? I think my wife especially, I've tried to explain it a couple of times, and she's just like, who cares? Um, but that's because she doesn't see it every day, yeah. right? I, I sit on a, a really outrageously expensive scientific instruments all day, and one of them's a, what's called an electron microscope, where we fire electrons down a big magnetic column and by the time they've got to the bottom they're nearly traveling the speed of light so some weird behavior happens so um and and you get to uh, see what electrons are doing at their most basic level so sometimes depending on how you do the experiment these electrons might behave like little particles imagine a bullet flying through something except that bullet's really small and then sometimes they behave like a wave, just like a wave at the beach. The, the, the way that they travel through this column and the way that they interact with matter becomes more like a wave. And sometimes they're doing both at the same time and you can see it physically. And you're like, wow, nature is mysterious. It's profound. I don't understand how this little bit of matter, this tiny little dot, this negatively charged dot, is travelling through space and simultaneously is acting like a bullet and then simultaneously, exactly at the same time, is acting like a beautiful wave, like at the beach. And it just feels like a God moment, that you get a glimpse at, at something deeply profound about how nature is working at its most fundamental level. It feels like, I, I, I feel like there's a sense of enlightenment, a, a sense of a deep spirituality as I... As I look through what's called a flu screen as these electrons go through and smash a little phosphor screen and they start to glow green and you're like, wow, it's beautiful. And, and, and it, it feels, uh, obviously I don't feel like this every time, but when, because uh, sometimes my boss is like, yeah, my right, boss yeah. is like, we need these results right now and so yeah. you don't sit and ponder. <laughs> um, but when I, I, I do get a chance to ponder a lot and which feels beautiful and... I feel like I see glimpses of divinity through something that sounds maybe to many people here horrendously boring. Yeah. But for me, it feels beautiful. And I'm sure that other people have this same sense. Say that, you know, they go on a beautiful walk somewhere and see something like a, a beautiful waterfall and a bird landing that's brightly coloured on a, on, a, on a tree right next to it. And they, they feel like, wow, God is here. I feel the same as I stare through, uh, in this case, an electron microscope. But it is true for many of the parts of my work where you get to uncover a tiny little mystery. You get to see, oh, God created this. This is God's creation and this is what it looks like and this is how it behaves. And that's not scientism. I feel like that's just uncovering beauty and, mm -hmm. and try to... And, 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 yeah, I don't think that really answered your question entirely. But, I think yeah. we get the feel of it. Hasn't Matt done well? Why don't you put your hands together? Thanks, mate.
Very good. I, I love that. I love the fact that we can actually integrate different disciplines and all together here on a Sunday morning. Well, I wonder if you might just hold that for a moment in your thinking. And some of you are very inspired and you say, I want to chat to Matt afterwards. So why don't you go ahead and do that. But let me start a moment here that I have to speak into the nature of matter and ask the question if matter matters with a story. Some years ago, it was Christmas Day and our family had gathered and we were all there, young and old alike. And my grandfather, my grandfather was there and he was celebrating with us. After lunch, when all the celebrations were still in full swing, he stood to attention and he said, well, I'll be off. <laughs> and all the family stopped and turned to him and said, what do you mean, Pa? Where are you going? And he said this, I'm off to see my gal. You see, my nan had dementia. And for many years, she had been in a high care facility. And my pa would go and visit her every day. You see, they made promises to each other. And I think Pa had also made a pact that he wouldn't leave her even as she realised she was getting worse. But the day came where he could no longer look after her and that broke his heart. So he would go and visit her every day. Some people would look at my grandpa and say, Cliff, why do you bother doing that? I mean, she has no conscious ability to talk to you. She probably doesn't even know you're there. She will never talk, she will never speak, she will never engage with you. For all intents and purposes, her body is just simply matter, a lot of bones and skin. But I think my pa would beg to differ. He would probably say, in response to the question, why do you do that? He would probably reply, well, we made a commitment and I love her. And so that's why I come and visit her every day. Even if she gives me nothing, even if she doesn't speak to me, even acknowledge my presence, there is value in that body. And she's mine. And I'm hers. And that's why I visit. See, over this year, we've been wanting to explore the question and the questions that I think our culture is asking. And that illustration of my grandfather raises a profoundly necessary question that we've been wrestling with, consciously or not. And the question is this. What constitutes a human body? We exist in a world that I've been describing as a flat world that says all there is is here and now. Where if you have a faith, it's pushed to the private margins and says you shouldn't speak into this habitat. 
that's centered around this sense of me being the center of all things, and therefore, if it makes me happy, it's worthwhile. Charles Taylor, that same philosopher I quoted before, is known as saying this We live in a cross pressured secular culture, meaning that. In some sense, we've determined that all there is is here and now. So we live in this vast space called the imminence, the right here, the right now. And we curate our lives and, and our experiences to satisfy ourselves that this is what there is. But he says there's also this sense and this longing, this nudge, this echo that we are still transcendent beings and that we have an inkling towards something bigger and greater. That's exactly why when we have a great big sporting event like the FIFA World Cup, all of a sudden commentators start to use transcendent language. They say things like, FIFA is the one who has brought us all together. FIFA is the one that promises peace. FIFA is the one that brings the nations and commentators will describe particular players, you know, and they'll say that was just an incredible redemptive moment. Well, that was transcendent, didn't it lift us? This is the very thing behind why even our TV shows like The Block or like My Kitchen Rules promise you next year is better than last year because we are claiming for and reaching for a sense of that there is something bigger than ourselves that we need to fill. And so he says we live in this cross-pressured Culture, curating our lives as though God isn't necessary, but quietly questioning in those moments sometimes, is there anything more? I remember talking to a friend who I'd met with gone fishing and I said on the way back, he said, no, I don't believe in any God. And I said, mate, you mean to tell me you've never had a religious experience in your entire life? <laughs> he thought for a moment and he said, well... I remember fishing one day on the Goulburn River. It was summer evening and it was really calm, you know, those warm, balmy nights. And he said there was this, this flock of ducks that just flew down the river and landed simultaneously on the water in sync perfectly. He said in that moment it was kind of like this transcendent, my word. He turned to his friend and he said, and there was this sense of awe. And so Charles Taylor says we live in this imminent and transcendent world. And so the question that I've been wanting to ask and I've been asking of for today is that what are the stories that will inform someone of faith when it comes to answering critical, complex questions about what constitutes a human being? There's one of the passages from the Bible, and if you want to look to it, I'm going to dive into three different places. But it says this, Paul, a writer in the Bible, says, Don't let yourselves, talking to people of faith, be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. What I want you to do is actually not be dictated by their shape, but I want you to understand your shape and how God might fulfill that. So in the time I have remaining, what I'd love to do is as I've sifted through the pages of the Bible, not all in the last week, but as I've been thinking about what are those narratives and those stories that would speak into most profoundly this question of what constitutes a human body, I've landed on three. And I'd like to share with you them this morning. Because there's a sense in these stories that they don't begin with once upon a time. No, they're far deeper and more profound than that. They actually start with almost the sense of there was a time 
And this is truth that you can apply to your lives. What is a person who is shaped by faith? What are the stories that narrate their lives? Well, the first one is a creation story, and it speaks of worth. If you turn back to the page of the Bible in the book of Genesis, it starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That behind all of the quantum that Matt was just talking about, that there was a God. And one of the most plausible explanations for why in which there, are, there, there is uh, creatures that can have conversations and can understand and experience beauty, who can make and create telescopes that can do what they do, or microscopes that can do what they do, is because behind it all there's a personal God. In fact, that that might be one plausible explanation for inanimate objects like atoms to be able to speak is that behind it there is a creative force and power. It goes on and says this, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over. And then he goes on and he says these words, So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And in that simple story... There's some profound understanding of what God is like and what humans are like, what matter is like. Indeed, this story became such a foundational story that it influenced those early Judeo-Christian people in the way in which they perceived and looked around at the world. Rodney Stark, a sociologist who wrote The Rise of Christianity, he said, what took a group of 120 people to one in every second Roman citizen in 300 years? And he said, what sparked some of that was the way in which those people of faith understood the value of a human life. He said, Greco-Roman world had a culture that said, if there was a child that was born that was actually not needed or wanted, or maybe had something that wasn't quite adequate for the family in which they were in, they would often leave it out to the elements to be, if you like, to, to die. He said, but there was this group of people came along who were actually formed and shaped by another story, a God story, that said, no, there's incredible worth and value in a human being, no matter what age or stage or function. And so they got into the habit, if you like, of picking them up and taking them home and welcoming them in. And he said, and even what's more about that is that for a woman, that meant even more so. And why for females, Christianity was attractive at that stage was because they saw that there was not just worth and value in a man, but worth and value in a woman as well. And so for many young women and older women alike, they saw in that creation story that was inhabited by those early Christians, a sense that they could be picked up too because they're a girl. You see, this kind of story informs so much. It informs our sense of the value of life. It informs our sense of the ages and stages. It informs our sense of of. Uh, the things that God values most speaks about creation care, speaks about human suffering. And even though there's so many complex things that have to be wrestled with and thought through, this was one of those foundational stories. And so if you like, God saw, it says in the end, what he'd made and he said that it was 
good. If you like, there's inherent worth and value in a human life. And there's inherent worth and value in the cosmos that he created that sustains that life as well. Story number one. Story two that speaks of love in action is a Samaritan story. So let's jump way, way, way ahead and we get into the pages of the New Testament and Jesus has arrived. And one day a lawyer comes up to him and asks a legal question. He comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what should I do to inherit the life of the coming age? Teacher, in God's coming age, in the regeneration where he's going to dispel evil and injustice and tyranny, I want to be part of that. So I just want to ask you, what should I do? And so Jesus, in like, he responds in turn and he says, well replied, what's written in the law? What's your interpretation of it? And the legal person came back and said, well, he amalgamates two different passages and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your understanding and your neighbor as yourself. Sounds good, huh? Well, Jesus says, that sounds good too. So he replied and said, do that and you will live. You live now and you'll live into the ages to come. But the legal person was just kind of curious and maybe wanted to win the debate. So he turned to Jesus and he said, ah, but Rabbi Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? You see, he's wanting to ask the question, what's the limits of my care for another human being? What's the limits of the law of love? And so Jesus, in this moment, some of you will be familiar with, he tells a story. He said, well, there was a man who was heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho instantly. The Hebrew man would have said, well, he identified this, this unknown man as a Hebrew person too, because he's probably coming from Jerusalem, the city of God, down to the lowest place, the, the, the lowest city in the world, below sea level is Jericho. And he said, as he was heading down, he got overrun by bandits and they beat him up. They robbed him and left him there to die. And there was a priest that was walking down from the temple that day down to Jericho. And this would have been someone that the, the legal person would have held in high esteem. And as he came to the body, he, he went past it. And, and then there was a Levite, another person of the priestly line, that he was coming down from Jerusalem as well. And he passed by that body too. He said, but then there was another man. And in this moment, you sense that probably the lawyer would have said, maybe he's going to say someone like me or, or someone else of my compatriots. And he said, the man who came down was a Samaritan. And he came to the man and he bound his wounds. He cared for him. And, and, and then he took him to an inn on his donkey. And he gave money to the innkeeper and said, anything that is an extra expense that I haven't covered in this, this money, I'll come back and I'll pay you for that. This is the problem in that setting for the lawyer, the legal man, was that Samaritan was someone that they despised and that they were at enmity with, Jews and Samaritans, Hebrews and Samaritans. And, and so all of a sudden this conjured up this, this conflict within him. How could a Samaritan person be used as an illustration to do something good? What? 
You see, he might have operated in the world that I, I treat people kindly who can treat me kindly back. Or I treat people kindly who are of my same skin. I treat people kindly who actually have, they can invite me back to their place once I've invited them to mine. But no. Jesus then turned to him and he asked him, not a trick question. Which of these three do you think turned out to be the neighbor of the man who was set up by the bandits? He couldn't even say the Samaritan. So he just said, the one who showed him mercy. Will you go and do the same? See, this is a profound story that can wash over in just that simple little adage. You know, be a good Samaritan. Don't you find that good Samaritans, we love the idea until we're called upon to be one, right? And yet this story has influenced and shaped people of faith for centuries, so much so now that it actually exists in our culture. They did it act like a good Samaritan. But yet it's still informing because it describes love beyond gender, beyond sexuality, beyond ethnicity, beyond socioeconomic status. It just says that's the ethic you live by. If in the first story we get the idea that matter matters, it's in this story some people of faith get the understanding that people matter to God. Just last week, Bron and the team who have been from here for many years providing food to people at Croydon Station... Many of you here, you cook food and it's delightful. The way in which you care and, and, and share that food with others every week who are on the margins. Well, Nando's Chicken in Ringwood here have been supporting that for many years too. And the owner of, or not the owner, but the manager of Nando's Chicken said to Bron last week, um, could we come and actually provide the meals? She said, Sure. So they cooked 45 meals and he stayed back at Nando's in Ringwood so that he could be part of actually pulling it all together. So Bron came to pick up all the meals and said to him, this is awesome, this is great, thank you so much. And then she got talking to him. And he said, actually, when I do this today, it reminds me of my grandmother. You see, my grandmother was a churchgoer and she used to provide meals for people. And so all this time later now, I feel like I'm doing something my grandmother did. She said, that's awesome. Why don't you go and tell her? He said, sadly, she died last year. But she always said to me, don't you dare feel sorry for me because I know where I'm going and it's a better place. <laughs> that story still reverberates through the ages. Story number two. A story of love. And the third story is a resurrection story. And it's a story that's redemptive and filled with hope. Jesus, it says, after his crucifixion, came alive. And John records that experience. He says, on the evening, on the first day of the week, when the disciples were together and the doors were locked. It's important to hear that word locked because they're wanting to say something particular about the body that Jesus had. He was, they were in locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus came and stood among them. He didn't open the door. He just appeared and he said, peace be with you. 
You know, sometimes the most profound thing that someone experiences when God comes into their life is they experience a peace that nothing else can give. And they just attribute that to God's presence and, and Jesus gives it liberally. And then after that declaration, uh, the disciples said, we've seen him with our own eyes, all but for one by the name of Thomas. And so when Thomas returned, they said, we've seen Jesus. He showed us his hands and his feet. And Thomas replied to them and said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where the spear went into, I'm not going to believe. And so there was a whole week that transpired until eventually they were gathered together and it says this, a week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them and they were through locked doors. <laughs> And Jesus appeared. What kind of body allows you to actually appear and not go through the locked doors? Well, it's a heavenly body, but it's a physical human body, and there's continuity and discontinuity. And then goes on and says, Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and just believe, Thomas, that when I've come to new life, that I have all authority even over matter itself. Believe. And Thomas returns to Jesus to reply. He says, my Lord and my God, and he worships him. And Jesus replies to Thomas and says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I tell you this, Thomas, there are people who will hear this message and they will believe that exactly your experience is the one now that's actually life-giving for them as well because someone like you who didn't, who needed to place their hands in the side, you've come alive because you've seen me and now your witness and testimony will roll through. But the early followers of Jesus and the people of faith saw in this story, this narrative, that what Jesus began on that first Easter morning when that body came to life was the beginning of a rolling forward of, of if you like, God's activity in the world that was life-changing because there would come a day it would signal in which God would redeem the entire cosmos and he would expel all evil and tyranny and suffering and pain. And there was a day in which they would be renewed with new bodies and that gave them a deep sense of hope that transcended their understanding. And as a result of that, they were the people who even though they experienced fears, they were not afraid and so we're told that as, if you like, as the Romans were leaving as a result of the plagues, it was the faith people like of Jesus that would run in and actually would help the sick and the poor, even if they got sick and died themselves, because they deeply believed that the basis of their understanding of Jesus was that one day, even when they died, they would live again, and that... God actually loved matter because he was not going to just eradicate it. He was going to refresh it and redeem it from the inside out. If you like, these are the stories that have been given and passed on to people of faith to invite them to consider a creation story that matter matters a Samaritan story that speaks of profound love that people matter. And a resurrection story that provides hope for a greater future in what's beyond. You matter to God.
And so that's why that same writer in the Bible can say this by the name of Paul. So my dear family, this is my appeal to you. By the mercies of God, if you've come to discover who he is in your life, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to be my transformative agents in the world. Allow these stories to filter your thinking that might influence the way in which you think about immigrants, the way in which you process things like decision-making in the political realm of the voice. Why don't you go ahead and allow these stories to inform you and, and in, if you like, inhabit them in your body so that they will actually cause you to think about how you treat the person next door, the person that you meet on the train. These are the stories that speak profoundly of the truth that God loves matter. The band's going to come up and we're going to have a, a moment of pause. Because what they're going to do is play for us a song that allow us to think about these deep things and transition into a time the early followers of Jesus called Communion. When I think of one of the acts, one of the gifts that Jesus gave people who followed him, it was to remember his life and his death and his resurrection through the space called communion. Because most profoundly at the heart of that action, that shared experience, was a conviction that God loves people and he's interested in matter. And he views it with worth and dignity because he's creative. And he redeems it. That's why his son rose from the dead, not just as a spirit, but as a body. And that those stories would roll through the centuries that followed, informing people of faith to live sometimes costly lives and complicated questions, they would wrestle with these three and ask God how to live. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he said it took bread. <laughs> and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, in the same manner, after supper, he took a cup. And he said, this is the blood, the new agreement between God and man. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because one day I will return. And for those who have been building with me, I will say, welcome well done, good and faithful servant. And if you have resisted and resisted and resisted and said, God, I don't want to build for your kingdom. I want to build for mine. Then God will say, okay, then have it your way. But my arms are welcome and open and I love you with an everlasting love. So I thought it might be most profound today to finish with a meal. If you're here this morning and this is all new to you and 
You hear in these three stories truth, powerful truth. Then maybe you would like to join in this communion space as a way of saying, Jesus, I don't fully understand you, but I want to thank you and I want to draw close to you. Would you draw close to me? There's a card on the tables that will help you do that. You might want to participate with a friend. Or maybe in a moment as we go to the various tables that are around the room, you might go with someone else. You might take a piece and have a cup and go back and sit in your chair for a moment and pause and think about these three stories and thank Jesus for what he's done and ask him, how would you have me live in light of these? And then go ahead and eat and drink. And when the time's right, Bonnock will ask us to stand and sing and we'll finish our time this morning. How is God speaking to you today? Do you know that peace that only he can give? Let these stories sink into your bones. Embody them. And live well. Let's share together.